Welcome to the Oil and Gas Global Network's Legal and Risk Management Podcast with Sarah Stogner, where each weekly episode touches on legal and risk management issues impacting the energy sector. Visit our website at www.oilandgaslegalrisk.com for more information on today's episode, past episodes, and upcoming OGGN events. Today's episode is sponsored by ThoughtTrace, developers of Alley, an artificial intelligence platform that reads and understands energy agreements and contracts to quickly find critical data. Hey guys, this is Sarah Stogner with the Oil & Gas Global Network's Legal and Risk Management Podcast. I am here today with Tony Cole, who is at Jensen Hughes, and thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And you are actually in Dubai right now. So it is 1130 at night, right? That is correct. Actually, I just landed. I was in Johannesburg, South Africa today and just landed this evening back into Dubai. And then I head off to uh, Saudi tomorrow morning. Yeah. So you don't have anything going on. (laughs) Absolutely nothing. My calendar is fully open. (laughs) Well, well, thanks for making some time to chat with us. Sure. No problem. Kind of big picture, can you just introduce yourself and who you are and where your school and, and what you're doing these days? Sure. Like you said, my name is Tony Cole, and I'm the International Practice Leader for Oil and Gas for Jensen Hughes. My primary job really is to go around and develop new business relationships with new clients, specifically in the oil and gas market, help drive some of the strategies across the company, again, specifically to the oil and gas market. My background, I did my undergraduate at Eastern Kentucky University, bachelor's in fire protection and safety engineering technology, and my master's from Wooster Polytechnic Institute in fire protection engineering. I have my PE license in several states. I'm also a certified fire protection specialist through NFPA and a certified fire and explosion investigator and instructor through NAFI. I also have several firefighter certifications. It's actually how I began my career was actually in the fire service. That's how I kind of paid for my college. To date, I've been in the region about 21 years in the Middle East. I worked for Saudi Aramco, worked for Sabic, and a few other companies. And, and most recently, the last two years, I've been based here in Dubai working for Jensen Hughes. Wow. Okay. So what do you guys do over there? Well, we are a specialty engineering firm. We have about 1,500 engineers globally out of about 90 different offices. When I say special engineering, we don't do a lot of MEP type of work, which would be your normal mechanical, electrical, and plumbing type of engineering services. We're more of a specialty engineering services. So specifically in the oil and gas market, we do a lot of process safety, technical safety. So that would fall in under the, the guise of HAZOS and PHA, facility siting, LOPA and ALARP studies, SEAL studies. But we also do a lot of industrial fire protection structural issues, corrosion, any of those specialty engineering services, that's where we kind of excel. Gotcha. Gotcha. So what are you guys or what have you seen over the past couple of years as because your specialty is fire for oil and gas entities fire related? What's on their what's on their minds? What are people worried about? What I see right now, we do a lot of emergency response planning. We actually have a software, nice software package that develops emergency response plans and fire pre-plans. It also develops crisis management plans. And so we do a lot of work in the oil and gas market, as well as other vertical markets, but specifically in the oil and gas market. And, And what we've noticed and what I've noticed in the past 
five years, I guess, really, is an increase in wanting to be beyond the normal emergency response plan to be in that crisis management mode. And that has really uh, stemmed from some of the recent industrial terrorism attacks that we have seen. And I mean, we've had a couple incidents here in the Gulf in the past month where we've had oil tanker incidents. We've had other problems, let's say, in the region. And so I, talking to colleagues and, and clients and things of this nature, they're, they're coming to me and saying, look, you know, what do I do when I have this type of incident? Because we, it's really difficult to plan for that. You know, when we can plan for those instances that we know are going to happen. To- right. Lightning at a tank battery or something like that. Exactly. Lightning on a tank battery, a, a pump fire, a column fire, a pipeline fire, a fin fan fire. We can plan for those. Those are credible scenarios. And so when we do our, we go through our, our incident planning methodology, we go through and identify those credible scenarios. And in the past, we've always ruled out acts of terrorism simply because you couldn't really plan for one just because you don't know what it's going to be. It could be something simple as a as an RPG or a car bomb, or now we're dealing with whatever caused the incident here on the tankers, whether it be a mine or or a small boat that came up alongside. I, I don't have all the details. Right. Yeah. And, and, you know, one of the things that I've been preaching and people don't really want to hear is the cyber attacks and, and remote accessing into systems so that you can essentially create a bomb from the facilities itself if you're able to get into the back door and remotely open valves or override safety warnings or alarms and things like that. Absolutely. You get into that DCS system and you can cause as much havoc and problems as as any explosive device that you could place somewhere inside the facility. That's absolutely correct. And so what I'm hearing from from people are, what do I do? How do I how do I plan for that? Or how do I address that issue on a more crisis management level? Right. And so obviously there's no one size fits all recommendation, but big picture, what's your kind of elevator pitch to tell people? One of the things that I tell them is that you have to identify it as a problem. You don't necessarily have to go down into the weeds in terms of what you're going to do and with respect to sending engines and manpower and resources into that incident. But you have to at least identify that that is a potential problem. Set up your communication paths. Talk about what your responders are going to do and what they're not going to do. My, my biggest thing has always been firefighter safety. And so what I always tell our clients is the first thing you want to do is that when you have an incident, if you do get information while en route or you believe it is something that is industrial terrorism related, hold up and, and, and don't go rushing in. That's probably my best advice. But, but basically, you know, and the elevator pitch is you have to identify that as an incident and fall back to how you're going to handle the incident once it's been secured and safe by the security forces. Right. And so my recommendation is always to first call your lawyer so that they can help you make sure that things are going to be privileged, that you don't have people recording or sending emails or communications because that's when stupid things get said and nobody knows exactly what's going on. So you certainly don't want to put it in writing. You're going to have to come back later and deal with insurance companies and plaintiffs and all sorts of other people saying, well, look what you said in this email. It's one of the big things. And then making sure that you've got someone there that once the regulators show up, someone that's used to communicating with regulators and helping to try to funnel that 
that conversation. And I've seen entities use the incident command center or NIMS through, I guess was developed with FEMA. I think I've, I've been correct. through some of the certification courses and I can't remember. Right. But, and it has a, it's basically a chain of command and, and reporting that I I've seen in really large losses do a good job of helping keep everyone in their assigned spots reporting to who needs to be reported to and kind of streamlining the response effort. And I agree with that. And generally, when we when we talk to people, when I talk to people, the crisis management plans are generally kept extremely confidential. They are for senior and executive management and high levels of emergency response and security forces. They're generally not shared throughout the company or through other responders, simply because of the sensitivity nature behind it. If you identified some areas where you feel that this could cripple a particular company, particularly, like I say, with, with something relating to industrial terrorism, that's not something you want to get out. But at the same time, you have to have it. Right. Some, the bosses have to know. And so you, you have to be sensitive to that. So, yeah, absolutely. The lawyers, although over here it's a little bit different in the Middle East and a little bit different in Southeast Asia, in the U.S., absolutely you want to be careful of that information because you do not want to get out without without going through appropriate legal counsel. Right. So is there any, or are you guys involved with technology? Have you seen any sort of new technology from a software, hardware, you know, widget, anything on fire suppression, fire response, kind of, you know, is there anything new and shiny in that that realm that our users or our listeners might be interested in? We actually have a really nice software package that we we have in-house. And one of the nice things I like about it over some of the other software packages, and I'm not knocking them because they're really good software packages. I guess the distinction is that ours is customizable and we have some pretty unique things that we can do. And what we can do is we can incorporate your typical fire pre-plans and your incident response plans, incorporate those with your spill response plans to your confined space rescue plans, and roll that in up into the crisis management plan as well. And so what this does is that if you have an incident that, let's say, starts off as, as a normal incident, and then escalates, using this particular software, it rolls up really nice and has all the NIMS forms in it in terms of ICS and accountability. Some of the cool things that we're able to do is tie in some DCS information, which is always helpful, tie in weather information. So when you're looking at your facility on a aerial image, you can look and see live DCS data. So I know what's in that pipe. I know the pressures. I know what's in that tank. I can see the status of my LEL and UEL detectors. We can plot weather data over top of that and do some static calculations to kind of plot a plume trail for you. So in the event that you're next to a, a neighborhood, you might be interested to know how far that H2S leak may, may travel. So that's what I really see right now. And, and, and one of the things that I, I really like about it is that it is all web-based. And so no matter how many times you update the system, it doesn't develop the plan until you click incident or drill. So let's say that Jim is the refinery manager and Bob is the fire chief and they both retire and you have new names and phone numbers. Traditionally in the past, you had hopefully controlled copies of your response plans that you had to go out and update. This you just log in, you make the update. And then once you have an incident, you just click the plan and it builds a plan on the fly in about three seconds. 
Wow. Yeah, that's neat. So do you guys also help in boots on the ground response? We can. Fortunately for us, we have, particularly in our petrochemical oil and gas group, we have several guys who are like myself who are engineers and firefighters. So we can help respond. That's not our primary function, but we can help. And there are certain people who have my number who ask for that type of response. We do have an entire investigation and forensics team. And those guys are, in fact, ready to mobilize within a moment's notice. We actually had a client, I guess about a year ago, had an incident in a cooling tower. It was uh, under repair. And as they always are when under repair, they're dry. So it caught on fire and burnt down to the ground. Client called me, and within 15 minutes, I had two of our forensic investigators en route to his refinery. Sounds like me keeping keeping fire retardant clothing, steel toed boots, and a hard hat in the trunk of the car. <laughs> Look, I, I've been a firefighter for 32 years. Firefighting is is my life. I tell people all the time, I have uh, I have firefighting in my heart and engineering in my brain. And I'm just like you, Sarah. I have my coveralls, my hard hat, my gloves. I have I have my ready go bag here next to me at all times, and, I, and I'm ready to go at a moment's notice. Yep, yep. So, do you have any recommendations for people who think, okay, well, I'm not big enough, or because I, for example, here in the I'm in West Texas today, and in the Permian Basin, it's been a really big problem. We're growing so quickly that if you've got a a fire at a facility that's outside of town good luck getting the local fire department out there because they're not going to leave the residential area and send all of their resources 20 minutes outside of town kind of thing, right? And so there's been several private entities that have some fire response teams that you can call out, but you have to have a contract with them and you have to think about that ahead of time, right? So I guess, do you have recommendations or thoughts for companies on big picture, you know, assuming something bad happens, what types of companies do I need to have an agreement in place with so that if I need them, I can get them out there? Or like you guys, right? If you've, if you've got an incident and then you want to figure out a root cause analysis or some sort of forensic analysis of what exactly happened. So, you know, who, who do people need to be, they're not thinking about it maybe right now. And so it's like, oh, they're driving along, they're listening to the podcast, and, you know, hey, if I'm in safety or I'm an engineer, a production engineer or a drilling engineer, right, this is something that maybe I need to talk to my company about because when something bad happens, that affects everyone's budgets and everyone's bonuses and, and bottom lines. And so trying to think about things before they happen, who should people have on call essentially to be ready for an event? In your experience, that is a great question, and I like to I like to step back just one step. If you take a look at the layers of protection analysis based philosophy, when it comes to that point, I'm at my last layer. So at that point, you know, all else has failed, right? My ESD has failed, maybe my drainage has failed, maybe my fixed systems has failed. You know, and, and now I'm faced with you know four or five tanks on fire, maybe the entire process unit on fire, and at, at that point in time. Anything that you've done preventative-wise under your layers of protection analysis is gone. So now is a time where the news cameras show up, and you've got to be seen doing something to handle that incident. Me, personally, I've worked with the Williams Fire and Hazard Control guys for 25 years. I know all those guys. I know their backgrounds. I've worked with them on, on training. Actually, 
I work as a guest instructor in their f- extreme foam school down at Teeks every year. I'd have those guys' phone numbers in my speed dial. And they're essentially a private firefighting company? Yes. They've been around since, oh, the early 80s. And they have about 248, 250 or some odd fires that successfully extinguished. The largest one being the Orion Fire, North Louisiana. The 285-foot diameter marketing gap. I remember that. Yep. Lightning strike. That was 2001, two or three, something like that. These guys set the benchmark, in my, in my opinion. There are a few other smaller firms out there that you could call. They don't have the bench strength and they don't have a lot of the experience. And so I go back to the old Red Adair and a comment he used to say all the time. And that was, if you think hiring a professional is expensive, try hiring an amateur. <laughs> yeah. So did you see the the obituary the other day for Boots from, oh, I can't remember his last name, but it's the other guy from Boots and Coots who trained under Red Adair. Yep. And... Yeah, I, I, they, I think they even mentioned that quote again because, and I completely agree. I always tell people, don't hire the cheapest contractor. There's a reason they're, they're the cheapest. And if they're willing to do it for significantly less than everyone else, they probably don't know what they're doing. Absolutely. And, and, and you know, and, and as a consultant, you know, we always get the, you know, kind, kind of like lawyers. And my dad was a lawyer, so I, I can say this. You know, lawyers and consultants kind of get the bad in the deal, right? They kind of like, you're, you're just trying to rate me over the coals with your fees. You know, and, and I try to be up in front and, and open and honest with my clients. But having spent many years in the plants before I was on the consulting side, I get to speak from my personal experience. And when when procurement went the cheap route, it always cost me a headache, always. And so so I guess when I talk to a lot of my clients and, and, and talk to your fans out there who, who listen to this podcast, you know, originally I was a firefighter. I came from, from the plants and, and came to the engineering world. So I, I wear both hats. And so for me, when I was at in, in the plants and stuff, I that's who I would call. And I'd have them under contract. I wouldn't leave it up till three o'clock in the morning to call them. Because that's when stuff always goes bad, right? It always goes bad at three o'clock in the morning on a Friday during a rainstorm. That's just that's just when events happen. <laughs> and I, I don't know what it is <laughs> about the good Lord upstairs wanting to wake everybody up at three o'clock in the morning during a rainstorm, but that's just when it happens. I tell my clients, don't wait until then to determine that I need to do some crisis management planning or emergency response planning. Don't wait until then, you know, call them, invite them out to your facility, show them around, say, hey, I'd like to have a contract with you guys. Generally, it doesn't cost anything to have an agreement. You only pay for what you use. That's the route I would go. Let them come in, let them walk around your facility, let them get to know it. They'll make some notes. And then when, God forbid, something does happen, you're not kind of piddling around on your phone with a dead battery at three o'clock in the morning. Yep. No, I completely agree. So is it fair to say we've, if we we think about firefighting, we think about pollution containment and response, some sort of maybe EMS or first aid responder type people. Who else can you think of big picture that you might want to have on speed dial in the event of, of a large incident? When we do our emergency response planning for people, obviously the environment is important to protect. So, you know, the longer this burns, the more fees you're going to pay in the environment. The more that you dump onto the ground, 
the more that you have a chance or run a risk of getting into the river or, or to the, the ocean or the bay, what have you, you're just, you're just running up your cost. I would always have environmental cleanup companies on my list. I'd have the Coast Guard if I was a brown water or even a blue water based facility. I'd have the Coast Guard. Oh, yeah, because you're, you're going to definitely have to report to all the relevant regulatory people. That's right. And having, you know, I know it sounds maybe, you know, easy to think about, but the sooner you call those guys, they have a lot of resources. And the sooner you call them and get them involved, the better you're going to be. I'd also have other general contractors on standby. I'd have dump trucks full of sand, crane and front end loader operators, canteen people. I'd have equipment. I'd have people like Williams Fire and Hazard Control who can stock the foam for you. I'd have other contractors on the line, depending on what facility I have. Again, you know, it, it would vary by facility by facility. Right, right. If you're talking about exploration and production versus midstream versus downstream processing stuff, yeah. Exactly. I mean, we, and, and we cover we, we cover everything. We do upstream, midstream, downstream. And so, you know, if you're an upstream facility, water's going to be an issue. So where, you know, can I dig a well somewhere? Can I, can I make a basin to draft from? If so, do I have a road to get to there? Do I need to have some front end loaders come in and help that? If I'm a downstream facility based on a channel, obviously Coast Guard and spill response control companies, vacuum trucks, cranes, sand, I'd have all those guys. I'd have the radio stations. I'd have the news stations. I've always felt like, and I'm sure you're the same way when you watch the news, news reporters are not in the technical field, right? So they they see something and they that's a nice way to say it. <laughs> <laughs> I was trying to be. I was trying to be nice there. You know, they they don't, they don't have a clue. Everything to them is an explosion. Everything to them is going to kill you tomorrow. I would always have those numbers on hand too, and I'd have my 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 law department or my public relations department prepare a statement and give to them as soon as possible so that they're not drawing conclusions. Because once a newscaster comes out and says, oh, there's been an explosion, we think foreign people are dead, no one leave their home. Once that happens, you know, you're just going to cause problems, not only for society in that region, but for your company as well. So as much as oil companies like to be private, it's always best to get that statement out early and quick. So those are some of the people that I would, I would have on my list. Yeah, and I think one of the good things about having a relationship with the Coast Guard, the first responders, state police, whoever it is, you know, that you're having to report to is they're really good at keeping the press out. And when you've got people that you trust that they trust you that everyone's trying to do the right thing and get this done and fixed as soon as possible, I've seen them go bend over backwards to make sure that incidents, huge incidents that if the media had been alerted, it surely would have been national news and no one knows about because of the perimeter that was set and the state police doing a sheriff, you know, keeping people out and, and keeping them away. So, yeah, I think that's a aside from the fact that they know things, they, they have control over the situation and a lot of your destiny is going to be in their hands. They have, from a practical standpoint, some really good ways of keeping the media at bay so everyone's able to do what they need to get done and not be distracted by a media frenzy. So No, that, that's true, sir. The last thing you want is is Channel 9 News or Channel 12 News or whatever setting up their camera right across the street from your main gate while your coca unit's on fire. It's better if that guy is three miles away. Yeah, while well, there's a plume in the background. 
Right, exactly, exactly. Because, you know, it's better to have that guy three miles away looking up in the sky at some bright lights trying to, you know, surmise what what has happened and so you know when you're on the, when, when you're on the news for this it's you know you didn't save a cat out of a tree so you're on the news because something went bad and right then is is a time to start to control that pr from from a public relations standpoint and you want to kind of capture that so i think that's a great point yeah well we're almost out of time if people want to learn more get in touch with you what's the best way for them to do that they can contact me via email it's a cole a c o l e at jensenhughes.com or you can also go to our webpage www.jensenhughes.com and there's a little thing in there that you can click to say find expert just put my name in there it's anthony cole i go by tony and you will come up with all my contact details and phone numbers and you can contact me at any time. Great. And you're also on LinkedIn, right? So we'll have a, a link in our show notes to your profile and, and the website and a little bit more information about you. And so I guess my last question and and kind of some I'm bad about asking, but our, our podcast is sponsored by Thought Trace. And so one of the things I ask is Thought Trace thought of the day that if you had a crystal ball and you could look into it and see kind of the big thing that would be happening in your area of expertise in 10 years, what do you think it would be? That's a good question. I would have to say a better grasp on the use of science and technology to help reduce and lower the hazards and risk in a facility. I really think we're getting to a point where our software is helping us identify these incidences. We're getting a better job at calculating blast and radiation pressures. I really think science and technology is going to be in our favor in the future. And that's going to help. Yeah, so using data. Exactly. Right, so gathering data, using it to make smart decisions and helping prevent incidents before they occur because you're able to identify and respond quickly. Cool. Well, exciting times. I really appreciate you making time to chat with me today. And good luck on your travels for the next few days. Thank you. I appreciate you having me on. It's it's been quite a privilege and an honor, and I'm always willing to come back if you want to chat again. Yeah, great. Thanks so much. If you guys could do me a favor and like, leave a review for this podcast, that's the best way for us to get exposure and let other people discover how much fun we can have reviewing insurance and risk management issues. Hey, it's Julie here, and I have a few OGGN announcements before we're heading into the events on deck. Street team, we are still taking volunteers for our street team. We're only asking for an hour of your time per week in exchange for perks such as free entry to our happy hours, shirts, networking with other young professionals in our group. The group is within Facebook, but you do not have to have a Facebook to join. Just send me an email. The link will be in the show notes, and I can get you started. Our happy hours... We are actually moving to quarterly happy hours rather than monthly. So our next Houston happy hour, as well as Midland, will be in August or September. Be on the lookout for that date. You'll get an invite if you're on the list. If not, you can sign up on the list below. And then we are launching another happy hour in Denver in August. So if you're interested in that one, the link is in the show notes as well to be notified. We don't have a date or details for that yet, but they're coming up. Okay, now on to the events on deck. We have Golf for Good on June 11th. 
2019 in Houston, Texas. All proceeds go to help redeemed ministries with our long-term recovery program and safe house to help victims of human trafficking become survivors. So mark your calendars and be ready to golf for good with Redeemed and our organizers, Global SEM Energy and Red M. For more information on how to sponsor or register, just click the link in the show notes. Data-Driven Drilling and Production Conference is June 11th through 12th in Houston, Texas. This is where Silicon Valley meets oil and gas. Register at the link in our show notes below. The Energy and Data Conference is... June 17th through 19th in Austin, Texas. This forward-looking conference will include the latest in digital transformation trends as they relate to the energy sectors with topics such as machine learning and data management storage, oil and gas development and drilling production, and more. Link down below. Energy Exposition is June 26th through 27th in Gillette, Wyoming. The Energy Exposition is for those who would like to know more about procedures, technology, safety, environmental practices, and equipment used in the oil and gas industry. And again, the link is in our show notes. Argentina Oil and Gas and Energy Summit 2019 is on July 10th and 11th in Buenos Aires. This summit's actually the first and only official event for the Argentinian oil and gas and energy industries. It will present a unique platform for networking that will bring together existing and future operators in the oil and gas industry in Argentina and Latin America. Next up is the 2019 IPANM annual meeting that Mark, Jake, and Paige will actually be speaking at. This will be July 24th through 26th in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And this year's theme is addressing operator needs in 2019. And next up is Desk and Derek Fort Worth second annual shoot for the future clay shoot. This clay shoot will be on July 26th in Decatur, Texas. And then last but not least, Summer Nape. This is going to be August 21st and 22nd to where the deals happen. 